page 1758, in the Pew Bible in front of you. To understand the context, the words of the Apostle will begin reading at verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28, read through verse 32. This is God's word, our authority and faith in life. Please give your attention to its reading. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then our verse for tonight. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. In the beginning of a romance, feelings can be fickle and trust can be unsteady. How does the young lady know that the man she loves really loves her as much as he says? How does she know that he will be with her through the ups and downs of life? How does she know that she is worth it to him such that he will never waver in his love for her? Unfortunately, these are the kinds of questions that many people need to ask themselves and struggle with because we have seen in our society, in many ways, the crumbling of commitment. We have been told, explicitly and implicitly, that our ultimate commitment needs to be to ourselves and ourselves alone. Not even those closest to us or those to whom we have made serious commitments have any right to question our doing something that is in pursuit of finding who we really are. This is the way much of the world thinks and has brought all kinds of difficulties into our relationships. But have you ever noticed that when you see a married couple that has been together for several decades, generally these are not the kinds of people who sit around in worry and dread wondering whether or not their spouse loves them. This is not, of course, a perfect picture because there are many long-standing marriages that can grow bitter and cold. But it is such a blessing when you see a couple that has been together for 50 or even 60 years and has experienced the kind of comfort and trust that only comes from putting Christ at the center of your marriage and then each spouse giving themselves to each other. That is what it takes, not only in marriages, But in all relationships, all relationships that are healthy and are the best ones are rooted in the idea of someone who serves the other person rather than themselves. It is in this kind of context that worry-free trust can be nurtured and developed and come forth. How does the Bible speak about this kind of dynamic between God and His people? The Apostle Paul does not need to roll out a series of things that God has done for his own. 
He does not need to show thousands or, 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 or hundreds of years of God's faithfulness for His people. He need only point to one thing. And that is the giving of His Son for our salvation. Though in a sense this is a lifelong act, what Paul is bringing our attention to in this verse is one event. The cross of Christ. That one event is where the Heavenly Father showed His love and commitment for us, His people. So as we think about the cross tonight, meditate on the cross and prepare to come to the table of our Lord, I want us to come away pondering three things in our hearts, three things in our hearts that we learn as we go to the cross. First, I want to, to us to think about the compelling love that we find at the cross. Compelling love. Secondly, I want us to think about the complete grace of the cross. Compelling love, complete grace, and then finally, costly assurance. Compelling love, complete, complete grace, and costly assurance. First then, a compelling love. Paul says this in Romans eight thirty-two: He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Many commentators notice that when Paul says he who did not spare, he is most likely comparing what God the Father did to some other story in Scripture. And he's pointing, pointing us, of course, to Genesis chapter 22, the story between Abraham and Isaac when God commanded Abraham this. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This verse, of course, shows us how painful it was for Abraham even to hear the agony. The verse reads, take your only son, the one whom you love. And of course, as they make their way up the mountain, we have this this pitiful scene, right? Heart-wrenching in many ways as Isaac says, Father, I, I see the wood for the offering, but where is the lamb? And Abraham looks to his son looks to him in faith, looks to his God in faith. He knows that whatever the Lord is commanding him to do, somehow, some way, God will make it right. And he says to Isaac, the Lord will see. Jehovah Jireh. In other words, the Lord will see to it. In other words, the Lord will provide. He will make a way. He will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And just as Abraham is about to strike down his son, the only son whom he loves, God stops him. And he provides a ram that was caught in the thickets. There are two ways in which this story teaches us about our great God and our great salvation. The first is the love between Abraham and Isaac. As we see the love that Abraham has for Isaac, this son that he waited so long for, this son for whom he had to wait in faith in the promises of God, this son who was the object of all of his affection the child of promise. This was the one that God commanded to strike down. But this is not, of course, a perfect picture. Abraham is not even capable of the kind of love that God the Father is. And what's more, Isaac is not deserving of the kind of love that Jesus Christ is. You have a God who is infinitely capable of loving. You have a son who is infinitely deserving of his father's love, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy and loving, God the Father, God the Son. We see the love of the Father and the Son from this story. The second thing we learn 
even more so than in Isaac, is that Christ is typified in the ram in the thickets. That's where we see Christ the most in this story. Because the Lord saw to it, as it related to Abraham, that he would not have to strike down his son. The Lord provided a way. But the buck had to stop somewhere. God could make a way and make a way and make a way and make a way. But at some point, something had to happen. Blood had to be spilled. And that blood was the blood of His own Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is no provision. For Christ is the provision. God made a way through Him. God did not make a way for Him. He made a way through Jesus Christ. He is the way. He would not be spared. And it was the love that the Father had for His creatures. The love that the Father had for us that compelled Him to give His Son for our sins. This was the way that sin needed to be done away with. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says, You know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. That's why Jesus came. So many people wondering, what's, what's the deal with Jesus? Why did He come? He came so that He might take away our sins. Jesus said He came so that He might seek and save the lost. Simple. A rebellious human race. Sinful, incapable of being reconciled to God. How does God reconcile them? By giving His Son. God shows His own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. And that is what the story of Abraham and Isaac does for us. It shows us the deep affection of the love that the Father has for us. He spared not His own Son, but He gave Him This is what the cross is. The cross has been described as a signpost to all the world's travelers. It is that thing which declares to everyone throughout the world that God the Father loves His creatures so much, so much that He can take the Son whom He loves, the perfect object of His affection, and He can give Him, the perfect Son, to reconcile and to save sinners. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It is a compelling love. That's the good news of the gospel, that the love of God compels us to give our faith and our trust to Christ the Savior and to give our affections unto the triune Redeemer God. A compelling love. We also see a perfect grace. A perfect grace. He spared not His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. He gave Him up for us all. That word all does not mean that Christ specifically bore the sins of every single person individually. But rather it means at least two things. The first is that Christ's death is perfectly sufficient to pay for the sac- to pay and to be an atoning sacrifice for everyone. And secondly, it teaches us that the benefit of Christ's death, the merit of his death, his blood, is equally needed by all who are forgiven by Him. That which Christ does, the the, the benefits, His forgiveness, it is equally needed by all who are forgiven by Him. I want to focus on that second point quickly. Because it's not as though the one who really needs Christ comes to Him in faith and is made new, and then along comes a person who has just committed little sins. They just have a couple of little stains on their robe. And Jesus can just kind of wipe those away. It's not how it works. We all together need the whole Christ. 
We need all that he offers us. We need his entire life lived, and we need to understand and realize that we need him not only for our sins, but we need him for those things which we think are deeds and acts of righteousness. Because if we trust in those things, when we think we've got it all together, and if we think we're piling up some kind of merit before God, some kind of quasi-righteousness before God that he can look upon outside of his son and say that that pleases him, then we are caught up in a delusion. This point reminds me of a beautiful story in the Gospel of Luke, one of the most famous parables of Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son. It's beautiful because it so perfectly paints the picture of the reckless abandon found in the forgiving mercy of God. In this story, we see the younger brother who goes off and does great harm to himself and his family, living in the way that he thinks is good for him. He's going to participate in some self-determination, self-identification, find himself and discover himself, make his own way, determine what is right and what is wrong. But when it all comes tumbling down, he comes crawling back to his father. And this father is one who has been shamed by this son. His name would have been whispered in the town square. Did you hear about so-and-so's kid? This is a father who has been embarrassed by this son, but he goes outside and he runs to meet him. Back then, in, in those days, men who owned estates didn't run. That was for children. It was for peasants, for slaves. But this father runs to his son, puts a ring on his finger, puts a robe around him, and welcomes him back into the house and prepares a great feast, a great banquet to celebrate that his son was lost, but now, it's, but now he is found. Too often we focus, and it's right to focus on that part of the story, but we get lost in seeing that as the only part of the story. We miss the tragedy of the older brother, or, or at least what seems to be building up to be the tragedy of the older brother. Because just as the younger brother lusted after the riches of his father... So did the older brother. He lusted after the riches of his father, but he just stayed in the house. For as soon as the younger brother comes home, the elder brother is so enraged that his father has welcomed him back home that he leaves. I can't take this anymore. I need to go outside. I can't believe my father has done this. This is is the one who embarrassed him. This is the one who shamed him. And notice in this moment what happens at this point in the story. Just as the father went out to meet the younger brother, so the father goes out to meet the older brother. You see, his love is for both of them. And he wants his love to be a compelling love and for it to be enough to bring them both back in to his home. But the elder brother is unmoved. I've always served you. I've never broken any of your commandments, he says. And the point is this. This is what Jesus is teaching those who are listening. Both of the brothers represent an error in living a certain way before God. The younger brother, of course, we we know where he went wrong, right? Go out, rebel, live in self-discovery mode, and spend your entire inheritance irresponsibly. But equally so is the elder brother wrong for thinking that he had earned the love of his father in what he thought was righteous action. Jesus is telling this story 
to two groups, to tax collectors and sinners and to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You see how both of the brothers match up to these two groups who are listening to Jesus. The younger brother would be like the tax collectors and sinners, rebellious living, self-determination. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. The elder brother, Pharisees, teachers of the law, moralists. I'm going to earn my way before God. Jesus is saying this, that neither the elder brother or the younger brother can stand before God in the kingdom as worthy of his love. And this is, what it, this is the whole point. To be a Christian means to repent not only of your explicit sins, but also of the ways in which you trust your own righteousness. To come to Christ and to come to the cross is to learn a new way of repentance. Not only the things that I know are wrong, but the little ways in which I have trusted in my own righteousness before the Father. I need to abandon that as well. You see, it is a complete grace. It is a complete grace that can cleanse us not only of our unrighteous acts, but also of the ways in which we have thought that the little things that we thought were righteousness could merit anything before God. We need to be humbled. It was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Isaiah 64, 6, even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags before the Father. The Apostle Paul said, I am the foremost of sinners. It was I that held him there until it was accomplished. A complete grace. And then finally, a costly assurance. A costly assurance. Jesus is the one who lived the way an elder brother should. If you think about the story of the prodigal son. The elder brother in, in the story waits at home. He lets his brother go off and ruin his life. But Jesus is the elder brother who leaves home. Who leaves his father's house. And goes out looking for his younger brother to rescue him. Thus we end by contemplating the last part of this verse in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Paul is speaking of all these things that predestined, called, justified, glorified, adopted, made part of, of God's house, given an everlasting inheritance. Freely, by grace. But even though it is free for us, we must remember, and remember especially tonight, that it is not utterly free. Someone had to pay. Someone had to pay to reconcile us to God. Not only was it of great cost to the Father to give His Son, His only Son whom He loved, but it cost the Son. When we get to heaven... And we are there in the midst of our great Savior. And we can spend all our time asking all of the millions and billions of people one question. Whether or not they have been forsaken by the Father. And I believe that anyone who is there enjoying eternal bliss. In the new heavens and new earth. With the triune God will have to look back on their life. And, and, and if they were to look at everything that's happened to them. They would have to say no. They've not been forsaken by the Father. But there will be one who would say that. Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, 
He didn't call him father. It's the only time he didn't call him father because in that moment, forsaken by God, the elder brother who came so that we who believed in him, who believed in his sacrifice, might be the firstborn, that he might be the firstborn among his many brothers and sisters and bring us into the family of God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, be the only one in eternity who can say that he was forsaken so that we might be able to say that we were not forsaken. He did not spare his own son. And because of that, we know that God will also, with Christ, because of Christ, for Christ, freely give us all things. That is costly assurance. It cost something great. When we question whether or not God loves us, we question whether or not God is there, look to the cross. Be comforted at the cross. When we compare the love that God has for His Son and the willingness that He has to give the Son for us, we realize more and more how much He must love us. This is how He showed His love. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. To be a Christian is to be swept up in realizing more and more how much you matter to the Father that He would give His Son. To see the great cost of our salvation. To see how much it cost the Father to give the Son whom He loved. To see how much it cost the Son to leave heaven's glory and to be the elder brother who would come and sacrifice Himself for all of us who had shamed our Creator, who had run away. That is the story of the Gospel. A faithful, beloved Son a merciful, loving Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Compelling love. A complete grace. A costly assurance. Let's pray. So then, our great God, as we come before the table tonight.